Welcome back to Pull Up A Chair and what a treat we have in store for you. I'm Bina Mehta, the chair of KPMG in the UK, and in each episode, I'm talking to some of the world's most influential leaders and thinkers about sustainable growth, what it means to them, and why it matters. And for today's episode, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Helen Clark, the first woman to be elected as Prime Minister of New Zealand, a position she held for almost a decade. Today, we'll be discussing all those issues, inclusion, fairness, sustainability, how government and business can work together more effectively, and how to be an exceptional leader in balancing climate and social impact with the other demands of a business. Right Honourable Helen Clark, please pull up a chair. Good morning, Helen, and welcome to the podcast. I'm absolutely delighted and really excited to have you here today. Not least because you have a formidable career backstory and I'd love to just explore what you have achieved, but also the learnings that we can take given we're facing into a very complex, challenging environment and where we're trying to meet the needs of people, planet and profit. Um, before I start, I just wanted for our audience just to just share some of your, your remarkable achievements. So you were the first woman to be elected as a Prime Minister in New Zealand, and you held that role for almost a decade. Um, you're also the first and only woman to lead U the United Nations Development Programme. You were appointed by Dr. Ted Ross from the World Health Organization to co-chair the independent panel uh, for the pandemic preparedness and response which was actually mandated by the World Health Assembly. A really incredible honour to be doing that role. And you are chair of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, really shining a spotlight on how much you care about climate, and we will pick that up. And last but not least, the chair of the Global Leadership Foundation, which is a phenomenal group of individuals that do some great things for countries and government and democracy. So we will explore all of those things, if that's okay, this morning. Um, but you, are, you have been a real advocate of growth, but economic growth that is, is achieved through advancement in equality. And there are different lenses, whether it's health, education, and we'll explore those. So I'd like to start by asking you, Helen, what does sustainable growth mean to you? Well, it means to me uh, having the growth that can deliver the human development results that we all want with people highly educated, healthy, properly housed, social safety nets, but achieving that growth in a way that doesn't do further damage to the planet. The truth is that over the way the world has developed in a long time, we've started to exceed planetary boundaries, which is, is quite serious for the balance between humanity and, and nature. And we can't go on like that. And I think there's a general recognition of that. But of course, the transition away from the way we've traditionally done things to new ways is not an easy transition. And it needs a lot of investment. It needs people to change the way they do things, both in their personal lives, company level, government level. Change is never easy. And it requires leadership and it requires quite a lot of courage. Well, we're going to unpack all of that shortly. Um, but one thing you do talk about is inclusive human development, sustainable development, and resilient development, which is a really lovely way of articulating how you sort of put those ingredients together. But do you think growth, 
that balances the need needs of people, planet, and profit is really achievable given the complexities that we we, we have to face into. We're not short of knowledge on how to do things. We have incredible innovation, science, technology. We're, we're approaching these challenges with more capacity than we've ever had before. So we have to believe it's possible because we know that the, the converse, if we carry on how we are, is, is a road to disaster. What, what's happening to our climate is horrifying. Uh, the growing inequalities in our societies are causing uh, huge pressures. And this lack of resilient development is, is really starting to, to pinch us now. I used to say uh, when I was at the United Nations Development Programme, if development isn't risk-informed, it can't be sustainable development. And look now at how we see uh, the development gains made just washed away with, with floods, uh, with, with landslides, uh, with all kinds of extreme uh, weather events. So we have to build resilience to the situation we've already got ourselves into, uh, but also uh, think of the other kinds of shocks which have knocked our economy sideways. I mean, the pandemic has been something like a $25 trillion shock to the global economy over the you know, period of three, four, five years. Uh, and with more than 20 million dead, that is very significant. And we weren't resilient to it. We weren't prepared. So... We, we need to build resilience to shocks of all kind and, and any company, any government that doesn't, isn't doing you know, over-the-horizon forecasting uh, isn't going to be doing uh, their voters, their clients, their consumers a, a favour. So the work that you did uh, on, uh, that led actually on the independent panel, there was quite a lot of learnings and conclusions that came out of that that were for government. I wondered if you would be happy to share, but more importantly, what I'd love to do is understand how businesses can learn from some of those, some of those learnings that came out of that review. Our review was pretty critical of the international response and, and justifiably so. We were asked to do it from the May 2020 World Health Assembly and to report by the following May I think the World Health Assembly assumed that it would be done and dusted and we'd be back to life as normal. And as we know, that wasn't true. Vaccines only came along at the end of uh, 2020. The, the response to vaccination was, was woefully inequitable. Uh, and you know, to, to this day, uh, there are any number of low-income countries around our world who have very, very low rates of, of vaccination for their, for their people. So we, we identified all sorts of mistakes. Firstly, China was opaque. That's the reality. It, it didn't uh, give the information it should have given in a timely fashion, nor was WHO empowered to, to get that information, to inspect on the site, to warn the world properly. It took a month to get uh, a pandemic um, emergency declared. And then no one took any notice anyway. Governments just sort of carried on thinking, well, that's something that's happening in China and then it happened in Iran and then suddenly it hit Italy and it was full force in Europe and the US and then people start to sit up and take notice but then you had the distrust of science, the distrust of authorities, the conspiracy theories, it, it all went down downhill. Um, messages for, for business, uh, you know, in, in reality, how many businesses were 
factoring a pandemic risk into how they were operating. Uh, I've been going to the World Economic Forum at Davos for, for years and years and years, and actually pandemic risk was always there, but well below uh, the, the risk of what was happening with the climate and, and inequity and, and, and so on. Uh, so I think it's been a wake-up call for everyone and I think for companies, you know, being prepared for any kind of adverse event, uh, you know, think the unthinkable. Who would have thought that we would have a pandemic on the scale of the 1918 flu uh, pandemic and not be able to handle it any better? Yeah. Hopefully we have learnt and we will handle something like that again in the future. Yeah, we're not confident about that, that people have learned because... Uh, we look at the, the slow progress on, on the reforms that are needed, uh, and I compare it with Chernobyl. After Chernobyl, within five months, during the Cold War, UN member states negotiated two new nuclear safety conventions. Here we are, um, you know, uh, more than three years after the onset of the pandemic, and the Geneva negotiations on a new pandemic treaty are pretty bogged down and likely not to be a very good outcome. So we really haven't learned. The geopolitics is, is tougher in a way than during the Cold War when it was more structured. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. But one of the things I think businesses have taken away from the pandemic is the social impact. And as you as you quite rightly highlighted, the inequalities that it, and even in the current environment, you know, with um, even in the UK, you know, low growth, high interest rates, high infl persistent inflation, um, cost of living really biting society. I think all businesses, um, not just in the UK globally, are trying to balance the impact or the social impact, right? Climate is absolutely an emergency and a big priority, but there is a growing focus on social impact, which I think is probably exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, and equitable, you know, and an equitable economy, which is quite a challenge at the country level, let alone if you're a business that has certain influences and, and able to affect change in certain areas, but not all areas. One of the things that you've said is that you had a vision for New Zealand. And you would like to think that you put the building blocks in place for defining the values, developing the culture and arts, and supporting families, which reap the dividends for generations, which I think beautifully encapsulates this, this absolute ambition to balance the needs of everyone. And in that time, you brought in multiple economic reforms and led the way in terms of environment safeguards and emissions trading that have been copied globally. So in many ways, ahead of your time. What was the, what was the biggest learning for you in, in coming to that sort of, you know, leadership role and also in leading a nation? Mm. Well, we all come to these roles against a certain background. Um, if I think of my, my – I came from a farming family uh, in an area about two hours south of, of Auckland. And by the time I was born, you know, during the Korean War wool boom uh, – you know, farming was, was relatively prosperous, but people had come from pretty tough times. My mother's father had been a, a World War I veteran, guest on the Somme. Uh, when people came home from the war, they uh, were often offered, offered what was called a rehab farm, rehabilitation. 
Mum's father had to walk off two completely unviable farms and uh, ended up with um, jobs in a city and then the Great Depression came. He was sent to a work camp. My mother and her her brother were sent to stay with grandparents. You know, these are sort of searing experiences for life. Uh, Dad's family were on the farm, so were able to be more self-sufficient, I suppose. And even in the middle of the Great Depression, somehow they got the money together to send the children all the way to a boarding school from the farm. So I came out of a background where education was seen as just the most critical path out of adversity and towards uh, opportunity. And, and also very conscious of the, you know, the social safety nets for the old and the sick and, and the poor and the disabled. So when I came into politics, I had these things very much on my mind that people should be able to enjoy the kind of opportunity that I had had and the, the backstop we had with a comprehensive national health service like the, the UK. So that was always a, a big reason for being in politics. But then I was also in a generation where... Uh, the environmental issues started to loom larger. You know, 1972 was the Stockholm Conference on uh, the Environment Development. 1992, the Rio Earth Summit. And out of that summit came the three big environmental conventions on climate change, combating uh, desertification and uh, the Biodiversity Convention. And really the last you know, three decades or more have seen you know, growing momentum to address these important issues. So you can't be in politics today only talking about socioeconomic development and look, not looking at the balance with nature because it's been uh, so disrupted. So that was the, the package, if you like, that uh, I went uh, into politics to do something about. And what a legacy you left. Um, you've also said that no one is going to put out a red carpet for any of us and you have to knock those doors down, which is something that resonated really closely with um, some of the things that I, I've seen. Um, it, de it demonstrates that we all face into challenges and um, to really be brave to push a better outcome for everybody requires that sort of that mindset, you've got to knock it down. I'd love to understand, um, or maybe you could share some of the some of the experiences that you had that really pushed those boundaries, whether it's in your role as Prime Minister or even in your United Nations um, development programme? Mm. I think in your career you need a little bit of luck. And uh, one piece of luck I had was being born into a farming family with no brothers because my observation was that where there were boys in the family, the boys, of course, would inherit the farm they would go on to have those sorts of careers and the girls would be lucky to get the insurance policy paid up on the 21st birthday. <laughs> the girls would do jobs more with mum in the house. The boys would do it on the farm. Now, Dad had no boys, so the girls did everything. And I came into life thinking girls could do anything. And, of course, my, my parents were terribly supportive of us and our education. I went to an all-girls school. When I went to university at the age of 18 in the late 60s, it was very obvious there weren't many women on the staff, <laughs> even though the student body coming through as the post-war baby boomers were uh, roughly equal and you know, male and female. So that sort of started to sensitise me to the fact that not everybody expected that girls could do everything. And then, but the university was kind of a meritocracy, so you sailed along. 
And I only started to run up against the issues of gender myself when I put my hand up for political positions that were highly contested. When I sought the selection to be a member of parliament for a safe constituency for my party, uh, there was me and there were six men, right? And, and I won, despite everyone saying it was a working man's electorate and they wouldn't want a woman MP. You know, I mean, half the electorate was female votes, so I never quite worked out where the working man thing came from. But, you know, these, these obstacles kept sort of rearing their heads. And then you, you could also go a certain distance, uh, again, on, you know, being hardworking and, and competent. But when I put my hand up to be leader of the opposition, then all hell let loose with gender-based criticism because at that time uh, people were unduly obsessed with how you looked, what you wore, uh, things that were really quite extraneous, but you had to try and neutralise somehow and that, that took a while as well. I think a lot of women who'd been the first into things would identify uh, with that. And then once you get to the top perch, you know, Basically, you've seen everybody off, so you can have quite a good run. But as you start to, you know, come off the peak of public tolerance of you, the gender-based criticisms come back again. You know, nanny state always telling you people what to do. It, yeah, it, it, so this misogyny is, it, it is deep in every society. It never quite, quite goes away. But you have to have a deaf ear to it because otherwise it'll depress you and and trip you up. Thank you for that insight, Helen, really, and, and your honesty around that. You've talked a lot about sort of government and po role of politicians. I just want to look at the intersections. You know, we're all, even as businesses, we're looking at the impact we have on society. We're looking at the impact we have on the climate, um, directly and indirectly. We're promoting inclusion, which actually aligns with what you were trying to do for a nation. And so I just wanted to sort of get your perspectives on some of the power. It's a very different scale and, and probably a slightly lesser complexity. Um, but I'd love to get your, some of your learnings that we could share with some business leaders. Mm. Well, I think business has, you know, the capacity to do a power of good and a great deal of business does a, a huge amount of, of, of good. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of pressure on particularly the global businesses now to be you know, themselves looking at carbon zero targets and how they're going to get there. And you, you see businesses approaching this with tremendous goodwill, you know, how they're taking emissions out of their whole uh, value, value chain. Um, but the social inclusion side is also a very important part of the, the recipe. And Coming back to a point you raised earlier about the pandemic and the inequities it exposed, uh, among those inequities were health inequities uh, and the burden of non-communicable diseases. And I wonder whether uh, companies could build uh, more systematically into the way um, they interact with their workforce uh, support for being healthy. You know, I mean... The reality is that uh, at, at lower economic uh, status levels, at uh, marginalised groups, minority groups in the society, you have a, a higher burden of non-communicable disease, heart disease, um, uh, the tobacco-related uh, illnesses, respiratory generally, uh, diabetes, renal failure. Uh, we can, in the way we organise uh, the workplace, uh, 
the working week, we, we can help address those issues and help people have the tools um, available to address them. And that has to be at every level of the business. It has to be the, the cleaner and the cafeteria attendant through to the senior manager. The, the burden of non-communicable diseases is you know, the biggest killer uh, these days. And if we don't get on top of it, uh, then we will start to see life expectancy roll back again. That is a really interesting angle that you've raised there because one of the things that I th most of my peers talk about when we talk about the world post-pandemic is what does this world of hybrid working mean? Because everybody's trying to sort of get a good balance because there were good things that came out of the pandemic in terms of balance, but there are also very negative things. And you've talked about some of the non-communicable diseases which are mainly physical, but we're also seeing mental well-being and also emotional well-being, um, which I think is probably a combination of the other two. But um, as businesses, we're all grappling with that. And you're also in the, in the mix of that, grappling with generational shifts, as you will, you, know, you will have seen, and you're probably experiencing now in your um, you know, women's leadership role that you play. You're you know, a very big proponent of equality. That is such a really important thing. In terms of generational is there anything that you have seen that apart from health we talked about is there anything else that you think um, might be worth businesses thinking about well generation x is different right yeah very different <laughs> generations are different <laughs> you know i mean I, I come from an age group where when you presented for a job you know the attitude was here's what i could could do for you and people say that flip right around to basically the the prospective employee interviewing the company and saying, what are you going to do for me? <laughs> Which we would never have thought of, of, of raising. But, hey, it's, it's great that young people are confident and have that uh, sense of self-belief. But there's also vulnerability, and we saw that during the pandemic. Uh, we saw the mental health issues, uh, particularly among young people. Young people are very social. You know, even though they're on social media and the phones a lot, they're also social, and that opportunity was taken away. So it took quite a, uh, quite a heavy toll and I think for businesses now, getting that balance of, you know, the, the working remotely and the working in the office is, is, is quite challenging. A lot of workplaces have found that people don't want to go back to work. But then if they're isolated at home, that's not necessarily healthy either. I mean, one thing about getting up and coming to work every day is it does require some physical activity, right, <laughs> that, which is not a bad thing. And then the workplace is also always also a social place. I mean, think about how we define ourselves. If I say to you, what do you do? You will define it by your work role. One of the most sobering um, things I ever experienced was saying to someone at a, at a meeting you know, 40, 50 years ago, what do you do? And he said, I'm in the army. I said, really? He said, the army is the unemployed. He couldn't define himself by his work. And we do identify ourselves by work roles. So... You know, it, it becomes extremely important for people to be in work, to be included, to have be able to be a social being. Um, I think one of the, the things you see around now is a lot of the work hubs out in the, the suburbs. Young people don't necessarily sit in the apartment. They're going to go to a work hub where there's good, good Wi-Fi and you can connect with others. But all of this is critical to, to social uh, well-being. It is, absolutely. How would you define yourself? Myself? Um, well, I, I like to think I'm a, a kind person. You know, I don't, uh, I take people as I, as I find them. I try to uh, 
do the best I can with the voice that I have to make the world a better place. I think we, you know, we've all privileged to have a certain time on this earth. We can waste it or we can do something purposeful. So purpose is important to me <laughs> and uh, being able to achieve something that's worthwhile for others. Um, I just want to pick up on purpose. You have always been very vocal about politicians with purpose, which in itself, you know, it can, can have different connotations. You've, you've just explained what defines you. That is your purpose, isn't it? Or is there, is there something else we've not picked up as well? No, that's, that's pretty much my purpose. But it's interesting that the term conviction politician has quite negative connotations now because it can mean people who are very ideological and really not, not open to fresh ideas or reason or evidence. And I like to think that, you know, I look for evidence of what works um, without being heavily ideological uh, about it. I mean, clearly I've come from the centre-left of politics, but it, it's looking at the evidence, uh, you know, having a vision of a society that's more equitable, inclusive and and sustainable. But what's going to get us there? What is going to get us there? That's what you focus on. What are the steps that need to be taken? So picking up on that, um, you, you know, I talk about the power of the collective because we can all do our own little things, but actually doing it together, doing it in, in alignment is much more powerful, which is exactly highlighted in your um, example around the independent panels work, right? So in terms of collaboration between government and business, is there anything there that you've seen or any views you have in terms of how we can work together for better to deliver that positive impact? Well, firstly, I think the relationship has to be very professional because we're all aware of where individual politicians or governments um, uh, get too close in a way that isn't proper and uh, you know, doesn't lead to, to due diligence around contracts and so on. So I was always very conscious in government that it had to be a professional relationship, that your, your life is, is an open book. And I think for business that's important as well. You know, business, ethical business wants to be seen to be doing things properly. So then you need to uh, create ways uh, where, where business can, uh, can engage in a meaningful way. I think it's, it's good to try to design inclusive dialogue platforms, which is one of the things which attracted me to chairing the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which was a UK initiative, by the way, uh, going back uh, over 20 years. But that has sitting on the board three constituencies. It has governments, it has industry, and it has civil society. And together, they have to try and uh, move to a meeting of minds, which isn't always easy, but... Um, at least everybody hears each other and you try to keep an atmosphere of reasonable respect uh, so everyone can make their point. I think that tr that trio of business, government and civil society is increasingly the trio yeah. that yeah. Yeah. even business has to work in. You know, mm. when we're thinking mm. about what we what we stand for, what we try to aspire to achieve, yeah. it has to take into yeah. account yeah. Yeah. all of our stakeholders. And actually civil society has got a growing mm. voice, mm. I would say, mm. now, mm. more so mm. than it yeah. used to. Um, I just wanted to um, pick up on a couple of other th uh, roles you have. Um, one of the things I didn't mention earlier is that um, in 2019, launch the Helen Clark Foundation. Um, and it's, what I love about your purpose and your ethos is that you are embedded in research and evidence. And I just wondered if you would share for our audience some of the things that you are progressing through that foundation. 
We've had a great relationship with, with WSP, uh, who are very focused on uh, urban design and sustainability and in infrastructure design of cities and so on. So that's that's led to some, some good work uh, around congestion charging, for example, which we don't have in New Zealand, but London's had for a couple of decades from, from recollection, uh, designing for safety. So a good body of work there. But we also look to you know, open up for public debate issues that are a lot tougher. And one that we did last year with the New Zealand Drug Foundation was on uh, the importance of, of massive harm reduction and policy change around methamphetamine use, which is, which is a problem in New Zealand. It, you know, it's not a sort of double-digit figure um, habit, but does it has got an impact in poor and marginalised communities, particularly Indigenous communities. And we, we take the, the view, and I also have a hat as chair of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, that drug use and possession should not be criminalised. We have to deal with these as health and social issues and we have to invest in massive harm reduction. Uh, and we do have some useful initiatives on that in New Zealand, but we could do a lot more. So we opened up debate on that. We recently did a webinar with um, University of Oslo and the Arctic University of Norway on this because they face similar issues in remote rural communities and including among Indigenous people. And it was interesting to get that cross-cultural exchange on it. I want to move on a little bit because there's so much I want to cover with you, Helen. Um, you have never shied away from taking leadership roles, um, but one of the positions that you hold is as chair of the Global Leadership Foundation. Not many people will know about it because you purposefully are a sort of silent movement that um, is for the good of the, the globe, global economy. Would you like to share some of the things you do? So the Global Leadership Foundation was established by F.W. de Klerk, the former president of South Africa and co-winner of the Nobel Peace Prize with Nelson Mandela because the two of them changed South Africa for the better. Democratic constitution, uh, rule of law, uh, you know, both, both great men from very, very different backgrounds. And, and who would have thought that the system that FW came out of could have produced a change agent like him? The insight that he had was, of course, that... He, he wasn't the only person who ch faced incredible problems as a leader and that uh, it, it would have been helpful to him and he assumed helpful to others facing similar great challenges, although almost nothing is as great as having to dismantle apartheid was, but that, that peer support could be useful. And he founded the Global Leadership Foundation with a view to being able to offer discrete advice and peer support to other leaders facing these challenges. And that's the history of the organisation. And FW led it to, until just before his, his tragic death in the past uh, couple of years. Uh, but he uh, recruited a fascinating group of people uh, from uh, other heads of state and government like me, more relatively more recent entrant, but people who've been uh, very senior in the, in the international system, uh, senior uh, ministers, people with a range of diplomatic and governmental skills. And, and to this day, uh, we actively identify where there might be opportunities to make an offer for discrete support. And we, uh, 
busy ourselves with that. Um, we've tended to be below the radar, although these days we do a little more of the op-ed, uh, public-facing work, but not in a way that jeopardises the confidential nature of relationships with leaders because no leader really wants it to be known that they're seeking support because that looks like weakness. Uh, so, you know, you, you go in below the radar. But we can say that, for example, with the process that ended the Mozambique Civil War, which had gone for decades, uh, the Global Leadership Foundation played quite a significant role over quite a period of time to stop the fighting between Frelimo and Renamo, which was so damaging to the country. I've followed you and watched you because I did have the pleasure of meeting your predecessor, President F.W. de Klerk, when, about 10 years ago. And the work that you do is so important, but it is under the radar, as you said. But one of the things I've always wanted to ask you um, is over your time of being involved, um, how have you seen the qualities of leadership evolve or change? Well, I've seen uh, women as very effective leaders uh, during crises like the pandemic. I think that's where women's leadership was on full display. The ability to empathise, the ability to uh, listen to the range of advice, make a judgement and communicate uh, accordingly. Uh, much less narcissism. Now, on average, we can say women did well during the pandemic. Some men did well as well, but not all. Uh, you know, where there was not that empathy, where there was not the honest communication about what was known and what wasn't, uh, you know, then people didn't step up to leadership roles. Um, look, I follow each year what's happening with Mo Ibrahim's African Leadership Prize. Isn't it a tragedy that in quite a number of years he can't award the prize because he can't see a leader who's stepped up? And, you know, we still see to this day leaders who won't accept that their time is up, that their constitution says you have two terms and no more, and then they change it, and they change it again. Uh, and this is not good for their people. It doesn't let new generations come through. Look, you, you may not approve of who comes after you in government, but you've, you've got to pass the baton on and move back. And we, we don't see enough of that. So I think um, you know, leadership at its best is a wonderful thing, but we often don't see it at its best. And this applies across countries at all levels of income and across regions and continents. You can get very bad leaders, you can get very good leaders, but we need more good leaders. And I think there are some parallels into the business world. You know, the businesses are evolving. We've got a technolo technology revolution. We've got the emergence of generative AI. We have this generational challenge. You know, our um, median age is 27, so there are more Gen, Gen Zs than there are Gen Xs in our organisation. Um, so we're all facing into this new world. And the emergence of good leaders is absolutely critical for the success or sustainable um, growth of our, our, our businesses and the economy. Um, but I just want to pick up on the thing that you talked to because you said um, women leadership in crisis has really stood out to you. Um, 
there will be, as a female leader um, who has played very senior roles across the spectrum on big issues, what advice would you give to women who aspire to these leadership roles? We did talk a little bit about knocking down those doors <laughs> and the resilience. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Well, I think uh, women are often put off by leadership roles. They think that it's it's too nasty and the you know the social media age and the trolling uh, has enabled misogyny which is, has always been there to take new forms and assume new levels very very unpleasant i saw how Jacinda Ardern was trolled and really hounded out of office by that ability of malign people to form these communities online and then mobilize accordingly and it moves from online then to physical manifestation like Everywhere she went, she was dogged by unpleasant crowds shouting about vaccine mandates and other other, other things. Um, but what I would say to women is you, you have to be prepared to step up into leadership roles because if you're not there, where are the women's perspectives? You, know, you, you can't just say it's too rough, too nasty, I'm not going to be there. You have to go in with the view that you can make uh, change for the better. And I think the same in the in the corporate and organisational leadership role. Yes, it's hard, but if you're not there, how are you going to change it? How are you going to make for more family-friendly workplaces, uh, you know, kinder workplaces, more inclusive workplaces? You have to believe you can make a difference and don't shy away from stepping up. And by the way, I mean, it, it's not a, a lifelong commitment, right? Our time at the top is a relatively short and privileged time. I had nine years at the top as a, a leader of government, which is quite a long run. Had eight years as the you know, the leader of a major UN agency. That was two terms, that's enough. You know, these are not life sentences. You go on and life continues to open many doors and you have the choice to walk, walk through them or shut them. My advice is walk through them. Never you know, look opportunity in the eye. And clearly in your career, this is exactly what you've done. You've continued with your, pers your personal purpose in any role that you've taken on. Um, but while women can aspire to be in these roles, how did you deal with the inevitable criticisms and um, challenges that you would have faced, as, as you've just explained, you know, Jacinda would have faced into two? Um, is there any tips there? Into, and I suspect this is relevant for any leader. How do you keep yourself resilient to this external challenge constantly? Well, firstly, I think you have to depersonalise it because while the attacks are coming on you, uh, it's not just on you. It's it's on the government you lead. It's uh, yeah. It, it's trying to get at what you stand for by you personally. But you know, don't don't let that get to you. You have to build very strong networks. Your family is always important. Your close friends are important. A lot of people in the fast lane burn off family and friends because they're very preoccupied with the career. This is not a not a good idea. You need uh, good networks of colleagues, so who you appoint around you is very important. Uh, and you have to keep an open ear uh, to where you might be going off course, where you need to correct, but don't be, don't allow yourself to be dragged down by the, the negativity. I also came from a, a generation that had to fight very hard to get to the top, so we never walked away. Never walked away from a fight. <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd go in and <laughs> confront it head on. I think... Younger people perhaps aren't so inclined to do that. They might think, well, okay, I've had enough, I'm going. But 
we never sort of gave up a foothold without, you know, be, being really voted out or, or beaten out of it, as it, as it were. So different attitude there. Different attitude, but it comes back to one of the first things we talked about, that resilient development, you know, and it's, it applies to individuals as much as systems. Um, I'd like to turn to a little bit about you, because I think we started to um, uh, sort of learn and, t- and take away some really great tips. Many... Many people look to you for guidance and counsel, drawing on your experience and perspective. Who do you turn to to seek counsel, guidance, advice? <laughs> um, I mean, over the years, uh, close networks of friends. Uh, when I was a young person, university lecturer, senior student university lecturer and going to politics, I had two people who were very influential who uh, supported me, my former professor of political studies and his associate professor, male and female, tremendously supportive of young people making those steps into into political careers. And then there'd usually be older politicians who'd been around a bit who you would take, take notice of. I think today... For women making their way up, those circles have expanded because while there's never been a huge number of women leaders, there are there are others who are touchstones. I mean, I would look, for example, to the career of Mary Robinson, who did a phenomenal job and still a good friend. I'd look to Gro Harlem Brundtland, who was Norway's um, first woman prime minister, wonderful woman, went on to head the WHO. So... These women became kind of touchstones to see how they handled uh, their job. There's many more of them today. When Jacinda was Prime Minister of New Zealand, you had the young Finnish Prime Minister, the young Icelandic Prime Minister, the young Danish woman Prime Minister. Angela Merkel was there for a very, very long time. Erna Solberg in Norway. Mia Motley in Barbados. I mean, just an incredible cadre of women. Helen, you've just returned from Nepal to celebrate uh, the 70th anniversary of Edmund Hillary and Tenzing's ascent of Everest. Um, I know you like trekking, but that would have been a very important moment for you. But you also wrote in The Times recently about how visible visible impact of climate change was there. You could see it. Would you like to just share maybe a little bit about the actual event, because it's a very big moment in history, but equally, um, you know, your, your thoughts on what you saw The first ascent of Everest on the 29th of May 1953 was a phenomenal event for New Zealand and Nepal. These two men no one had ever heard of (laughs) catapulted to the top of global consciousness, really, because Everest had been thought to be not conquerable. Could human beings survive at that kind of uh, well over uh, 8,000 metre altitude? And I grew up with the legend of Sir Edmund Hillary, same generation as my father. My dad had all his books, but a, a national hero. And same for Tenzing and Nepal. Uh, so I was asked a number of years ago to become the patron of the New Zealand Himalayan Trust. And I've been in that capacity to the Everest region of Nepal twice because to this day we raise money along with associated trusts in the UK, Canada and the US and Australia, for the hospitals, schools, water infrastructure, bridges, reforestation, 
in that mountain region. So it's, it's phenomenal to go there and sort of tread in the footsteps of the great man who, who didn't walk away with Everest with a notch in his belt and say, I've done that, go and do other things. He said to the Sherpa community, how can I support you as you have supported me? And they said to him, our children have eyes but cannot see. We want schools. Amazing. And when the first uh, hospital and clinics that Ed built went in there, the two big problems were TB and, uh, and goiter and severe iodine deficiency, which can lead to severe mental disability, which was present in so many families. Now it's non-communicable diseases, but moved to a different generation of disease. But it's, it's, it's been phenomenal. But what, what you know when you're in the Himalayas is that the uh, warming climate is taking a terrible toll on what is called the world's third pole, which is the Hindu Kush Himalaya range of mountains running from Afghanistan through to uh, the east of Nepal and, and to India. And downstream of that mass of glaciers, snow and ice, live two billion people. We are told that on current forecasts of global warming, two thirds of those glaciers will be gone in 70 years. The Pakistan floods, which were so devastating in recent times, were exacerbated by glacial melt. As our glaciers melt, they're not storing the, you know, the, the water that needs to be slowly released, uh, particularly through the summers. So we face more drought, more food insecurity, more downstream flooding and disaster. It's, it's horrific. In New Zealand, uh, our glaciers are also disappearing very, very fast. So. We're rather conscious, I think, of the impact of climate change on coastal communities, on small island states. But the purpose of the editorial in, or op-ed in The Times was to draw attention to the plight of the mountain communities and the downstream communities of, of what's happening to our glaciers. Just, just a, a really stark reminder of how urgent the action is. And again, you know, for businesses to face into some of these really, really big, knotty, short-term challenges as much as planning for a future that's different for all of us. You clearly like trekking. You've got lots of things you do in your spare time, I know. But what sustains you? I think I know the answer because you've talked about networks and family. Um, but what sustains you outside of work? Well, uh, I, I love... I love trekking and I, this is a year for adventures, not only Nepal, that I have a, a voyage coming up to South Georgia and the South Atlantic where we go in the footsteps of Shackleton, uh, who same, sailed the small boat from the maroon boat on the ice shelf to South Georgia and trekked over the mountains to a whaling station to get help for the men left behind on the stranded vessel. So that's going to be a big, big adventure as well. Uh, but Sorry, are you going to follow those footsteps? I don't think we're going to climb the mountain range, no. but we will. We'll, <laughs> we have a boat that will go around the islands and visit key points, but no doubt there'll be some trekking involved. Uh, I'm also patron of the Antarctic Heritage Trust, which looks after the heritage huts in a number of parts of Antarctica. So what keeps me going is, firstly, you need to get physically fit and, and active so you can do these things, and also to you know, carry out the life you want to leave, which involves a, a lot of travel and a lot of uh, very late nights on Zoom from New Zealand and uh, keeping on top of a lot of issues. So so physical fitness, um, you know, sense of well-being is pretty important. If you could go back, back in time, to the younger Helen Clark, what advice would you give yourself? 
I would give myself the advice to be more more confident in my own ability, perhaps at an earlier stage, because when I went into politics in New Zealand, there were so few women and you never had it in your mind that you could be prime minister. You thought maybe one day you could be a minister, but, you know, you never had the sense of, of self-belief that you could go all the way. And that only came over time as you started to realise that each door needed to be to be walked through. So I hope that, you know, today young women growing up can see, you know, people like me and others who've who've walked through all these doors and got to the top and, and they can do it. And they, you know, can probably do it at younger ages like Jacinda Ardern did. But believe in yourself from an early stage and never have any doubt that, you know, you can, you can do these things. Helen, thank you so much. There is so much you could take away from this. One, on a personal level, you know, whether it's um, how you define yourself, which I think is a question that everybody should ask themselves. How do we define ourselves? It's also about the networks and not forgetting the importance of those networks that ground you as much as they support you and challenge you. I think the other thing that I really did take away from you is that Let's not forget those searing experiences that each of us have. There will be something. Actually, probably that is the root of the, the, you know, the motivation. But on a business level, I mean, it's incredible. You know, you talk about innovation. You talk about being prepared for risks. And as organizations, we're constantly reviewing the risk landscape, the risk surfaces. Um, but you're right. You know, how many organizations were really looking around that corner and actually looking at all risks equally, albeit we know the probability may be different. So that's a really interesting takeaway for me. And the final one is the, um, the professionalism, maintaining that no matter which stakeholder group you're into interacting with, which is really, really important. It is really clear to me why you're a notable feature in the Forbes most powerful women's list. You know, everything you do for sustainable development, for social equality, for climate change, and most importantly, for international cooperation, because we know we need that for some of the biggest challenges that we're facing into climate being the, the you know, that you've just talked about, biodiversity. Um, and by that international cooperation, can we as business also lean into that as well? The most important takeaway for me, Helen, is the importance of purpose and ethical purpose and ethical behaviours which underpin everything we're trying to do. Thank you very much, Helen. It's been an absolute privilege to have you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on Pull Up A Chair, whether you're at home, at work, or somewhere in between. I do hope you'll join me next time for more insights from business leaders and thinkers on how to unlock sustainable growth that delivers to the needs of people, planet, and profit. Goodbye. <laughs>